Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Call it troubling words that John gives, but there's probably it's probably uh, sort of piqued a lot of people's interest in the whole idea of God knowing what He knows ahead of time versus God preordaining what is going to happen ahead of time. Okay, and so what kind of got us thinking about that was uh the the question or the issue with respect to Judas and John in our lesson in John actually uh actually gives us a little sense of that so we're picking it up in John chapter 6 verse uh verse 70 where Jesus is is now experiencing i think probably it would be fair to say a deeper form of rejection in his ministry than what would have been expected. Okay, now let me sort of preface that by saying that it was kind of expected that when Jesus would go into and interact with um, the religious authorities of the day who had their set way of doing things with a theology that was slightly off in terms of what the Messiah would be like when he finally came, because again, they had the idea that the Messiah would be someone of great uh, grandeur, you know, who would come into the world in a, uh, in a magnificent way. And there were a lot of political, geopolitical thoughts that people had because they thought, well, you know, when the Messiah comes, that, that Israel then would be restored to the former glory that it had when it was under the leadership of King David and King Solomon, and to some degree even King Saul. Those were the, the big three that the, uh, that, that the people wanted. And so there were thoughts about that, and you can kind of sort of get some sense of why that would be, because at the time when Jesus came and people were looking for a Messiah, they were under the oppressive arm of Rome, and nobody liked to be, to be under that oppression. Right? Even though it brought stability and, and order and all those kinds of things to, uh, to Israel, there was still that uh, you had to do things the way Romans wanted it. And so this feeling of, of, of national autonomy was really strong in Israel. And they thought, well, when the Messiah comes, that's been prophesied in the Old Testament, there's going to be wonderful peace and prosperity and everybody is going to get along and it's going to be so wonderful and this is how it's going to be. And then here comes Jesus and he doesn't seem to really fit the bill in terms of their expectation of what they were looking for. So then Jesus starts to interact with and to some degree confront the legalism that had been established religiously in terms of the lives of the people. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the, the chief... Uh, the chief ones with whom Jesus had that interaction. And it was mostly not because he was seeking it out, but it was whenever he would do something and it would be on the wrong day, then there would be somebody who would come and yell at him for it. And then they would get into this, uh, this dialogue. And so a lot of John 6 and 7 is really uh, capturing that, uh, that dialogue or that interaction. So all of that being said, then what starts to happen 
is that as Jesus starts to articulate what his ministry is about and showing what his saviorship is about, which is it, it doesn't fit the bill if you're looking for a national figure, then what starts to happen is not only are the people with whom there would have been expected resistance, which would have been the, the religious leaders, but now it's also the everyday person who's maybe looking for somebody to follow. And so we saw that last week already, is that, is that the more that Jesus teaches and the more that he talks, what starts to happen is that some of the people that were his kind of general followers, they weren't the 12, but they were the general followers, start to do what? They start to walk away. They start to reject him. They start to say, this isn't for us. And they begin to slip away. And so then what starts to happen is then Jesus, and we saw this last week, is that Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you also going to go away? And then what does Peter say? He says, we're not going to leave you. And then he, he uses that wonderful phrase of you alone have the words of eternal life. So Peter and the 12, they get it. Now, they don't fully get it because, you know, even they were saying, boy, what Jesus is saying is really hard to understand, right? And we can relate to that because half the time we don't know what he's talking about either. That's why we have a great time in, uh, in Bible class. So then what Jesus says, that's an assumption on my part that we are, <laughs> I am mandating to you that we will have a good time in here, right? Yes. Yeah, way more fun than they have way over there, right? Yeah, just always remember that, yeah. So, so then what happens is Jesus goes into this little, this little moment with his disciples, a very intimate moment, it's very personal, where he says then, and we pick it up in verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet what? One of you is a devil. And then, Jude, then John gives a sort of parenthetical sort of explanation of that. He says that Jesus spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, and again emphasizing one of the twelve, not one of the sort of hangers-on, buddy-uppers that came later, right? But this is one of the twelve was going to betray him. So let's take a look at some of this, uh, this that to some degree is troubling for us, and yet at the same time, there's also great comfort in this. So Jesus starts with that question, did I not choose you? Now, literally, what he's saying or asking is, by my own act, I chose you. And that sort of gives us a little sense of how Jesus does what he does. You know, when you look at his, the way that the 12 came to be in terms of his 12 apostles or 12 disciples, was that he chose them. Everybody else kind of said, hey, we want to join you. We, we like what you're doing. We like what you're saying. We, we see the great things that you're doing, so we want to join ourselves to you. And I don't think Jesus ever would say, oh, no, no, I didn't choose you. I don't think he, he would roll that way. But there is that sense here of when you are chosen or when you are called by God, that there is some sense of, okay, what does that mean? That, that 
seems to suggest a deeper sort of connection, and that's what, what comes across literally in the Greek. By my own act, I chose you. So I threw in a little question there. Why did Jesus choose followers and then invest himself in a three-year training program? Because three years was all he had. Why, do all, why go through all that? Yeah, because he knew that what? Eventually he was going to ascend into heaven and then they would be uh, doing it on their own. Does it, has it ever struck you as odd that Jesus would have left one of the most important missions in world history to humans? Does that strike you as odd? I mean, are we all that great at doing this? Wouldn't it have, wouldn't it have been better to have a legion of angels come down and do all of this rather than just us? Would you have done it that way? No, I wouldn't have done it that way either. So we'll take that up with him when we get to heaven. Uh, Especially since it already fell once before. Do what? Especially since it already fell with Adam before. Yeah, I know, I know. I, you know, some of this foreknowledge stuff, I don't know, you know, what was he thinking? All right, so, all right, so let's get into this part where then Jesus says, yet one of you is a devil. So it raises some intriguing questions, or at least one. Since Jesus, since Jesus knew ahead of time who Judas was and how Judas would give in to temptation, why did he choose him in the first place? So there's some possibilities here, and there's probably like 50 possibilities, but I just could think of three, all right? One is, is that Judas believed in, at first and then later became disillusioned and gave up his faith. Another option is he never had faith, like saving faith, to begin with, and he retained his expectation of Jesus' Messiahship, but, but he actually never converted you know, to faith. That's a possibility. And then the third possibility is that Jesus here is calling Judas to repentance to return to faith in him. So can you, do you have any other thoughts about what other possibilities there could be? Yeah, Sharon. Yeah, I think, you know, like Mary, the, um, say this. Mary was picked to be uh, the mother of Jesus. Mary was picked, I mean, okay. And Joseph was, it was already, you know, I mean, so if Judas, Judas hadn't betrayed him, then Jesus probably would not have been crucified at that time. So I, to me, it's, it's all in the plan. It's all in the plan. Let's go with that, all right? I mean, again, it, the hard part here is that people, finite people of faith, are trying to figure out God's infinite plan part, okay? And some people have thought, well, if it, had, if it wasn't Judas, it would have been somebody else because somebody needed to betray him. I don't know, maybe... Maybe nobody would have needed to betray him because they were going to do it anyway, and this just made it easier for that to happen, okay? And yet, you, just, you, you get this sense that the inevitability of something could have, in fact, been God's plan to do it. See, this is the difficulty, isn't it? We're struggling with, God knows way more than I do, I trust in his sovereignty as well as in his love. So that means I got to not worry too much about what I don't know, but trust that his sovereignty and his love is still at work for me. So let's, let's play with this a little bit. Yeah, Max. 
Well, I read an alternative theory that they had on Judas that uh, he was, at that time period, the Romans were so oppressors of Israel that uh, they were hoping the Messiah was going to free them, you know, yeah. that. And so uh, Judas uh, was in that camp. He thought that Jesus was going to rise up and help them free themselves of the Romans, but he thought he had, I think the devil tricked him into thinking and deceived him that he has to start the revolution, you know, yeah. so... To betray Jesus, he thought that if he uh, get, turned him over to the Romans and uh, that the uh, Israelites would rise up. Then. Yeah. So he was deceived by the devil mm -hmm. into thinking he was doing the right thing. And then right. once he did it, he realized he totally failed. Yeah. And it sort of suggests that in the Gospels where he took the money that he had taken from the authorities, he went back to them and said... You know, this is wrong, and here's your money back. And they said, hm, you know, we did our deal with you, and, and that was it. So then he went out and killed himself. So, yeah, so that part, that's a, I've heard that too, and that's a very interesting aspect. Yeah. Now, the problem with plan. With plan, the problem with plan. The problem with plan is yeah. the fact that we already know that the Father wants everyone to be saved. Yes, that is one of the notes down here, Yes. Oh, okay. Well, we're on the same page then, aren't we? Yeah. So, I mean, you couldn't say it's an ordained plan to have happen. I think he knew it would happen, but I, I think he wanted, he still wanted them to actually come to be saved. So, we'll get to that question with respect to, even though he betrayed him, was that forgivable? Which to me, see, to me, that's the more pertinent question, Right? Was it forgivable? And could he have come back and repented and then been restored and included in the fellowship of the, uh, of the apostles? Okay? Yeah. Carl. I see, I see Judas as a perfect example to us. That no matter how close we, we come and, and profess Christ, yeah. if, if, like he, if you suddenly turn your, back, or turn your mind to yourself and to your thinking instead of God's thinking, in other words, staying with God's plan. Yeah, we're all subject to to, to that. So it's it's important that, that we we go we stay with God's plan mm -hmm. and God's motion for us to, to to do what we what He wants us to do. Yeah, I, I I've kind of been going down that that path in in the weeks leading up to this, because. The idea of my expectations of how I think it ought to be with respect to a faith life or with respect to a relationship with Jesus or, you know, almost anything is that when the thing actually happens versus what you expected would happen, if those expectations are kind of set in stone, then what can happen is, is that you become very disillusioned. And I think that there are a lot of people in our world today who are very disillusioned. Is that maybe they came to faith when they were young, like, you know, and kids, or when they, were, they grew up in the church, or, you know, whatever it would be. And then they got out in the world, and they discovered that the world's not a very friendly place, and there's a whole lot of influences that come at people in terms of what to believe and what not to believe and what's truth and what's not truth and does truth even exist and all those kinds of questions. And what happens is then they're comparing that 
to the expectations that they have about faith and about what it means to be a believer and a follower of Jesus, and they become disillusioned. And when you're disillusioned, and this could have happened with Judas, we don't know, but um, when you become disillusioned, sometimes disillusionment will cause people to give up their faith. Again, the question would be, what does that mean for eternity? If I am in a moment of disillusionment versus standing before the Lord at the end, you know, it, is there forgiveness? Where does forgiveness fit in? Yeah. Well, I'm intrigued because they're the 12, and he calls him out as a devil, not a doubter. I just don't see why the other disciples wouldn't have called him out. Could you fake your faith and following him? I just seen Can you fake your faith and follow because him? Judas got by with that till the very end. Well, again, I would say even all the way up until the Last Supper, you know, they're all, Jesus now is instituting the Lord's Supper and they're doing the bread and the wine and the lamb. They're doing all the Passover stuff. And then Jesus has that moment where he says, whoever dips in the thing with me, then he's the one who's going to betray. And then, and then in that moment, Judas looks at him and then off he goes. And so you think, why didn't all the other disciples like grab him right then and say, you know, hey, stop what you're doing. We, we finally get it. Well, these, this was one of the most clueless groups ever that Jesus had, could have picked. I mean, really, they weren't all that perceptive. And to some degree, maybe they thought, I mean, these are all guys, so you know how guys think. You know, oh, Judas is going out to do something that Jesus told him to do. I mean, isn't that kind of what, how we think? We sort of think like that, right? Yeah. Have you, have you noticed this little side note here? That, uh, that all the time when Jesus is talking like in parables and in deep meaning, there's no indication that women are present. It's only men that are going, we don't know what you're talking about. Have you noticed that? Yeah, that it's like the, the level of the spiritual density must have been so high that it just wasn't, you know, and it makes sense. Mostly these guys are kind of blue collar. They, you know, they're fishermen and they're tax collectors. There's, there's not, you know, a lot of deep thinking that goes on. But that tells us, that tells us a lot about the miracle of Pentecost, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that tell you about funny, how, be, how amazing these guys went from like that level to we get it, and not only do we get it, but we're going to preach it, and we're going to teach it, and we're convicted by it, and we, we will go to our grave over it, and they did. So that tells you about the miracle of Pentecost maybe that we never thought about. All right, let's look at the next question here, point D. Was Judas's betrayal any different from Peter's denial? Or the other disciples abandoning Jesus in his hour of need? See, I mean, if we're going to talk about what Judas did, well, then we've got to talk about what Peter did, and we've got to talk about the other, what the other disciples did. Yeah, Bob. Uh, that brings up a point that is curious to me, and that is Jesus prayed and interceded for Peter. Mm -hmm. He did not for Judas. Right. Right. And Peter... Turned and returned. Yes. Judas knew he was wrong, 
Yeah. So Judas did not give himself the opportunity. But it does still raise the question of had there been, had he given himself the opportunity, would Jesus have welcomed him back? I would argue, yes, he would have. Now, again, it's conjecture because that opportunity was taken away. But again, when we think of, when we think of God as the loving God, and we're going to look at the, the, especially the passages in Romans that tell us that there isn't anything that we could do to separate us from God's love. And Lord knows we try, Right? But, but you can't, you, God is, he is judge for, for sure of sin. That's the justice part of God, but he's also the loving father. There's kind of this two-sided coin to God and nothing, nothing that we do or nothing that happens in life can, can change that. So my sense of it is, is that had Judas not taken his own life and then therefore ended the opportunity for repentance and coming back to Jesus, coming back to the fold. That gives you the sense that what Peter did, and notice Jesus knew ahead of time also what Peter was going to do, didn't he? Right? Right? But again, the difference of coming back in repentance and faith and then being restored to the, uh, to the fellowship of, of believers. By the way, when did that restoration occur? Do you remember? We'll see it when we finally get to the end of John, which is going to be like five years from now. So... <laughs> But, uh, and we'll remember that we said that, all right? But what, what is it that, uh, remember that whole uh, little moment with, with Peter and Jesus? Yeah. They were sitting around eating fish by the lake. Yeah, yeah. And, and then Peter comes to Jesus, and Jesus says three times, Peter, what? Yeah, do you love me? And then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And that's the restoration now of Jesus back, to, of, of uh, Peter back to the fellowship. Yeah. I think when I think of salvation for myself or anybody, mm-hmm. if there was really no hope for Judas, then there's no hope for any of us. That, that Why not? Is, That's very true. Why not? Um, because God calls us. I mean, he, whether it's to the last minute, I mean, we want, I think it's hu- I think it's because of humans. We want to classify our sins and we want to decide who is on this side and this side and this side and this side. Mm-hmm. And when I started attending a Bible study that really talked about salvation, I realized that's the key. You, yeah. know, you, you, you have to let that go. Even though what he did was horrendous, that's God's decision in the end. He makes a choice. Because sin is sin. Yeah, yeah. that's I right. I, and I, so I stopped worrying about, well, mm-hmm. could this one go to heaven? Could this one go to heaven? I'm like, hell if I know. She's my French. I don't know. Because that's, that's what salvation is. Well, that may or may not be edited out of this. <laughs> but, I mean, I see, to some degree, we overthink stuff. Exactly. And then we overworry stuff, okay? But I think, to some degree, it's also born out of a sort of primal anxiety of, well, if that could happen to him, could that happen to me? Yeah. And so then that, you know, okay, let's, you know, that's why we, we jump into this and do a cannonball in the pool, okay? That's why we do it. Somebody else had their, yeah, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, and like, what about the other guy? Remember, there were two thieves on uh, uh, separate sides, and the one guy was going, you know, hey, if you're really the Christ, save yourself and us, you know? And, and yet the other guy rebukes that guy. And then says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
But with the reality of it is they're still on the cross suffering the consequences of their crime. So the forgiveness did not negate that. But what forgiveness did was it uh, enabled the guy to, to know that salvation was his when Jesus said, today you'll be with me. Okay? Yep. All right. Let's see. Oh, yes. I never quite understood why Judas' role was so important. That they would give him 30 pieces of silver just to point Jesus out. I mean, to the soldiers. Like yeah. So the Jewish leaders knew who he was, and he wasn't trying to hide. Right. Why was well, the 30 pieces of silver was the, was the going price for a slave. So that's the significance of 30. If, it, if the going price of slaves had been like, you know, 20, well, then it would have been 20. So there's... Yeah, see, I don't know. I mean, again, um, that, some of this is like, well, I don't know. <laughs> that's a real profound statement there. I realize that. I'm kind of overusing that too, I know, but yeah. Yeah, Bob, you had thoughts on that? None. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there was some prophecy in the Old Testament. I didn't look it up, but it's kind of ringing a bell here a little bit that there was some prophecy regarding that. All right. But again, it didn't articulate, it, it was more prophecy in a general way, not in a specific way in terms of actually who, who it would be. Okay. All right, so, okay, oh, yes. I'm going to be optimistic. (laughs) We are all optimistic in here, but go ahead. Judas could have repented at the moment of death and and killed himself in grief. Yeah. Overwhelming grief at what he had done. Yes. I'm going with that. Well, he was sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, okay, and so there's nothing more you want to say about that? No. Good, thank you. That's a relief. Well, again, see, we're, we're struggling with this, and this is a good struggle. Okay, this is a, this is a deeper struggle because, because, again, it's sort of this notion of would it be possible to do something that would cause God to change his mind about you as a believer. No, he might get a little ticked off. He might go, oh, there you go again, doing the same thing, okay. But, but that's not going to cause him to change his mind about you as a believer. And, and so that leads us into thinking about the doctrine of predestination with respect to salvation. Because the Bible talks about predestination, but it only talks about it with respect to those who are saved. It does not talk about it with respect to those that are not saved. And sometimes what happens is, is that we look at the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election, and we want it to say more than it was intended to say. We want it to help us understand why is it that there are some people who will be saved and some people will be damned? Why is that? That bothers us. Well, it should bother us. And so that was one of the questions that a guy by the name of John Calvin was struggling with. He was a kind of a contemporary, sort of a little bit after, but a, con- a contemporary of Martin Luther. So this like goes way back. These questions have always been asked. And it's trying to figure out, is there a, 
predictable way to understand the fact that there's a heaven and there's a hell, and there's going to be some people in heaven, there's going to be some people in hell, and how can I be sure that I'm in heaven? And what if I have moments of weakness and doubt and fear, and would that cause me as a believer to all of a sudden go from certainty of heaven to maybe the possibility of hell? See, that's we all go, no, that's, it wouldn't, but it could, all right? So we're going to talk about that. So let's look, at, uh, let's look at the passages here. There's two of them that are key in the New Testament, the passage from Romans 8, and then there's one from Ephesians 1, okay? So we'll kind of work through that a little bit. So Romans 8, 28 to 38 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of, Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's your takeaway in hearing that, in reading that? What are you taking away from it? Once saved, always saved. <laughs> Once loved, always loved? Is that what you said? Once saved, Once saved, always saved? Okay, that's a takeaway. Okay, what else? What else? No matter what you do, how bad you think it is, how bad anybody else thinks it is, as long as you believe in Christ, He can forgive you for it. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do. We all think, well, but if I do this, He won't be able to forgive us. That's yeah. not true. He yeah. yeah I, it, there is, I think, a basic human deficit, doubt, that thinks that there could possibly be that one thing right and if there was that one thing how do you know you hadn't already done it right that's that basic doubt and some of that i think is actually of satan you know satan is the master of doubt that's what he's all about that was what he worked with eve and adam when they had that moment you know under the tree did god really say and as soon as you 
entertain that question off of what God's Word says. God's Word says this, and the devil says, well, did God really say that? Well, did he really mean that? Well, how do you know he actually did that, right? And as soon as that entertaining sort of uh, seed gets planted, then the next thing you know, you're doubting the very words of God himself, including these words right here, which is the idea that God loves you, and nothing you can do is going to stop him from loving you. Now, there's plenty of things we can do to stop him from liking us. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, if I'm doing stuff he doesn't like, and it's bad for me, but I think it's good for me, God loves me enough to do what? Do a little tough love, right? A little tough love will be sort of the form of, well, okay, try it out, see what you think, whammo, right? Okay, that's, that's showing great love. So not just simply letting me persist in my sin is part of why there's a lot in the Bible that talks about sin, the consequences of sin, and the devastation of sin. But even in the face of that, God's love is still there. So we always are thinking, well, okay, he loves me, okay. All right, so let's see. Michelle, did you have your hand up? Okay. Keith. Well, we go back in Exodus. There's an example where Moses had a conversation with God where Moses could not see God's face. Right. We know that's a party of things. So yeah. this is telling us right now, for us to be with him, God is doing all these hoops for that to happen because naturally we could not be with him because of our sinful nature. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we could try, but that little... Well, remember when we talked last week about the cracked egg? Do you remember when we talked about that? Do <laughs> you really want to go back there? No, no. But that was the point I was trying to make. That is exactly what I was trying to say. Get that? Exactly. Okay, good. Yes. Thank you all for all of the uh, references to eggs that you emailed me this past week. I didn't get any recipes, thankfully, but uh, anyway. But yeah, but that's because of that. The sin nature, or if you want to, however you want to describe it, is a fundamental uh, deficit. It's a corruption within. And it affects everything I try to do, not in a civic way, not in a like everyday sort of way, but certainly in, in, in terms of God. God so demands perfection. Entity there where an unjust person cannot be with God. Right. That's what was told in Exodus. Yeah. In other words, something has to be done through hoops. That's right. for that to happen because normally without this, we cannot, be, we cannot see his face. There's no chance. Right. Okay. Other? Yes. I think and sometimes yes. when we talk about our, our, that doubt is the the people planting those words mm -hmm. are so sure of whatever lie they're telling. They're very convincing. Oh, yeah. And at that moment, whatever we're feeling, we, we have that. Could I be wrong? Yeah, like a little second guess moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of idea. Yeah, we could. And, and so I want you to think about when you would be susceptible to that. When you might be susceptible to thinking that God's love isn't enough or that your faith maybe isn't quite as strong as you would like it to be, 
And then doubts creep in. When might that happen? During an extreme sickness or maybe a death of someone that you... That's right. So when you're dealing with life stuff, like a death of somebody that you think died way before they should have, before their time. Because of, I lost my mom when I was 10 years old. She yes. To have a baby when you were 10, out. yeah. It took me a long time to like that baby. Yeah. And maybe have some feelings about God. You know, because again, it's God's life and death. I mean, that's his world. And so when something like that happens, a loss, a betrayal, or whatever, and we think there's, there's a fundamental unfairness to this, right? That that loss occurs before it should have. And, and it blows our minds. We, do, we can't get our heads wrapped around it. And so that would be a moment when you might be susceptible to sort of bind into the doubt. And of course, that's when the devil steps right in and says, well, I have the answer for this, you know. And then it's a, it's a flawed answer. It takes us down the wrong path. What else? What else sort of situation? Guilt. If you've made a wrong decision, done a wrong action, and you're feeling guilty about it later, seeing the repercussions, you go, yeah. oh, gee, why did I do that? And then you just, you just don't take it on yourself. Yeah. When you hold something against yourself that you haven't forgiven yourself for, or this just idea of giving it to God sort of thing, because you're, you're still seeing the negative consequences over time of the thing that you did, right? Or didn't do, whatever, it's omission or commission. But that sort of in-your-face, continual sort of wham, wham, wham can make us susceptible to thinking to ourselves that maybe the doubts that we're having are more true than what God's Word is saying. Okay, what else? Yeah, Max. With people that I deal with that have addictions, you know. Addictions. They can't forgive themselves. Yes. They keep thinking they're failing over and over. They're going back to that drug. That's right. You know, and, and so it's a real battle. That's right. When, when the thoughts of your own unworthiness, which is a big shame, fear, and guilt thing for a lot of people that are suffering with addictions, is that there's this reoccurring thought in there that says, God loves everybody else, but he couldn't possibly love me. Not because of the one thing that I do, but because the thing I do, I keep doing, right? And again, see, we look at that from a human perspective, which we're tempted to do, and we're sometimes tempted to impose the human perspective onto God and say, well, Surely God is tired of this too because I am tired of it if I'm living with that person, working with that person, you know, what, what, whatever my relationship is with that person. Okay, what else? What about persecution? See, one of the things that we forget maybe a little bit of is that in Paul's day and by the time he writes Romans and, and Ephesians, there's active persecution going on toward Christians. There was no longer an ambivalence that the government had toward Christianity. They're starting to persecute. You know, Paul himself, well, he's under house arrest, so that tells you a little bit about it. And so because of that, in the moment of the threat of your life, or the moment of the threat of the life of your loved one, the oppressor says to you, you either recant your faith or I'm killing your child or I'm putting you to the sword. 
And because that was very much of a reality in the lives of these people, then you can see maybe where the doctrine of predestination and election would be of great comfort. Because what he would be saying then is, even if your faith falters, even if the strength of your faith gets down to like, well, like we talked about, the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, where it's barely even there as far as you can see, then the comfort of the doctrine of predestination goes, says what? You don't have to worry about that. Because from the very beginning, God knew that you would be his. And he will hold tight to you even if you are weak in your grip of faith on him. Does that make sense? And I think the beauty of that, especially nowadays, with people living longer, one of the things that we're noticing is uh, that some people are more predisposed to Alzheimer's and dementia and other cognitive impairments. And one of the great fears that people often have who are uh, beset by that and their families also worry about it is that if that individual can no longer even remember his name or where he is or has a cognitive sort of, uh, sort of gap there, how does that affect that person's faith if that person can't remember even their own name anymore? Well, the good news is, is that from the very beginning, that person as a believer was known by God and called by God and gathered in by God. And it doesn't matter in that sense. Because even if that person forgets who you are or forgets who Jesus is, Jesus doesn't forget who he is. That's the doctrine of predestination. See, so that doctrine never was intended nor was it offered to answer the question of, of why is it that some people are saved and some people are damned. It has nothing to do with that. And so that's one of the things in terms of our Lutheran confessions is that even though this is a very comforting doctrine, the Lutheran confessions state that what you believe about it is not a heaven or hell issue. It's not a heaven or hell issue. So you could get it wrong in the belief that you have about predestination, and that will not exempt you from heaven. So that's a cool thing, too. There's, there's a number of doctrines and teachings in the Bible where it's, it's I'm not going to say unimportant, because, like, okay, they're all important, but some are the, like, what's an example of a heaven or hell issue? That if you don't believe it, you're, you're uh, getting yourself out of heaven. You're not a Christian anymore if you don't believe it. What's in the, what was one? Resurrection. Resurrection of Jesus. That's a pretty big one, yeah. And there's a lot of people that don't believe it. They look at it as, oh, that's impossible, so that's, that's just mythology. Well, then you're not Christian, okay? Virgin birth would be another one. So, kind of the uh, Apostles' Creed stuff would be pretty fundamental, okay? So that's an example of that. All right, well, let's go to uh, Ephesians 1. And you'll sort of hear the same, the same tenor of that. 
Ephesians 1, 1 to 12, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in the let me see I goofed that up here to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved okay in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." Okay, similarities between the Ephesians passage and the Romans passage. Again, it's written to people who are under duress for their faith, so that's one aspect of that. And notice again, the starting point is God's love through Christ for all people. Now here's the dilemma for a lot of us, a lot of people. Maybe not us, but just a lot of people. God chooses to love people, even those who reject him. True or false? True. God is a loving God. Now again, he's also a just judge. But that side of him gets way underplayed in our uh, thinking today, people's thinking today. So what's on people's minds is, if God is this all-loving God, then why is there a hell in the first place? Why not just make everybody go to heaven because he's a loving God and he loves people and heaven is a wonderful place to be and hell is a terrible place to be. So how, why in the world would a loving God allow there to be even the opportunity for people to go to hell? Yeah. Um, They don't deserve to go to heaven. They have uh, rejected Christ who through him you get to the Father in heaven. And so they have rejected all of that information, and so they deserve to go to heaven. So I'm a little uncomfortable with the word deserve because it sort of adds this idea that if I'm in heaven, I deserve it, and if I'm in hell, I didn't deserve heaven. So I'm not quite comfortable with that word deserve. Well, I'll have to give that some thought. (laughs) All I know is that I know what I'm not. It's sort of, I had a little Lutheran tremor inside of my body when I heard that. And I have to kind of think about what I'm going to do with that. But it's more of that, if anybody deserves anything, it's Jesus. And because he imputes his righteousness on us, well, then there's that. So... I think that's kind of what you meant to say, or at least I hope it is, because otherwise we'll have an issue, okay? Yeah, yeah. Let me get to Keith here and then to Sharon. 
Yeah, it's the path to heaven is through Jesus. I mean, that's a way of saying it. And if you want to be with him, yeah. that's the path you take. Yeah, and if I didn't want, I mean, I heard somebody use the analogy of, um, like, uh, it wasn't eggs, so don't worry, we won't go there. <laughs> but it, the analogy was like a phone number, okay? It, why isn't there a universal phone number for every single person in the world? And if you just want to talk to, if I wanted to talk to Priscilla, I call the number, and then it, it would come to you, but it would also be the same number that goes to Glenn, and it would also go to John. Well, because there's, a, there's an individual pathway. So the, the, it, it's not a universal pathway, it's, a, it's an individual pathway. And so the pathway to heaven is through Jesus. The pathway to the Father is through Jesus. Because of what Jesus did for us, and the fact that he's the only one that could have done it, see? And so because of that, if I say, well, I want the path to heaven, but I don't want to have to believe in that Jesus stuff, then there's a problem. Because basically what I'm saying is, I can do it then on my own, or I can do it according to some other religion or whatever the other requirements are. And the problem with that is, is that if it's got to be Jesus or nothing. It is kind of all or nothing when it comes to Jesus, okay? So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, Sharon. But I think we're leaving the devil out of this because he has influence over, you know, he's the, again, fighting against uh, God. Against God. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I want people that he's also influencing people to make the wrong decision. To, oh, yeah. To have doubts, to have. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he... That's his interest, is pulling us away from God, and God's interest is pulling us toward him. So, yeah, very, a very fundamental thing there. All right, so the starting point is God's love through Christ for all people, and out of that, his desire is that all people be saved and what? Come to the knowledge of the truth. That, the Bible talks about that in, in Timothy or Titus. He says that exactly, uh, that exact thing. The reality is that some people will accept or receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and some will not, even though it's God's loving desire that they do. See, that's, it, that, that's the, the crux of the matter, isn't it? God still loves people, but he does not impose that saving will on somebody and say, thou wilt be that way. There is that choice aspect of it, is there not? The choice to reject is quite powerful in us, and many people do. So then God chooses to love people whether they accept or receive him or not. Nothing can stop God from loving us. So when we talk about the difference between foreknowing and predestining, predestining is that foreknowing is out of God's omniscience, that's the word for that he knows everything, he knows ahead of time who accepts and receives him and who rejects him. He knows that. Imagine, and, and I was thinking about this the other day, why, why you and I would not make very good gods. <laughs> well, there are many reasons, but I was only thinking of one, yes. is because when I know someone doesn't love me, or when I know someone rejects me, I ain't the greatest at loving that person. 
When I love somebody, I kind of need for them to love me back, or, or at least like me, okay? But God loves people, even the ones that reject him. His love is even stronger in some sense. And he works even harder to bring that person to himself. And so you wonder, like, at the end of time, how, how awful that's going to be for God to have to say to people that he loves, depart from me into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That would, I can't imagine how awful that will be. And it will be Jesus saying that. Yeah. Comes to mind for me when we talk about this is that the way you can understand it, or at least I can, is to compare it to a parent or a child. To a parent child, because yeah. Because we're his children. Yeah. And when you talk about how, how, for instance, when you say if you don't love me, I'm going to have a hard time loving you. Right. Not so with that, because he just loves us so much. We're his children. Yeah. We do that for our own children, no matter what they do. How they turn their back on us mm -hmm. or have nothing to do with us or mm -hmm. at least whatever, we're going to love them just as much. You are going to love them, but the human aspect of that can wane just a little bit. Because, you know, you love them, you still want to strangle them. I mean, you still... <laughs> yeah, I noticed that was a very intimate, uh, touching moment right there between mother and daughter. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll follow up on this later, I'm sure, I assure you. All right. Yeah, Glenn. I like to think of it as, as the sheep pen. That sheep and shepherd? That, that, that if you're in the sheep pen, yeah. well, then you're sort of assured. But then again, there's that wolf in sheep's clothing that oh. likes to sneak in. Yeah. And that's the devil. Yeah. And that's the way that you realize... There's not only the powerful saving grace of Christ, mm -hmm. but there's also Satan who's out to devour you and take you down. Yeah, it's just that he, he has this really sweet look on his face, which makes him attractive to want to go yeah, that he direction. Is the wolf in yeah, he is. And yet, that's a great analogy of the sheep that keep jumping the fence. And heading off, you know, to do their own thing because, you know, the grass is always greener. And what does the shepherd do in his love for that sheep? He goes after that sheep and pulls it back. And don't you know when he's coming back, he's got the sheep around his shoulders like that. He's lecturing that sheep all the way. <laughs> How many times have I told you? You know, that sort of thing. Yes, that would be very parental, would it not, to do that part? Yeah, absolutely. All right, other... Oh, yeah, John. Well, you know... The, this uh, number three there, it says predestined refers only to those who accept and receive him in faith. Mm -hmm. But faith is a gift, a free gift. Yep. And so I like to think of it rather than, and I know especially some of our Baptist friends like to say, I came to know, I came to know Christ. I, I accepted. Yeah, I made a decision it for Jesus. that I did something about my salvation. I yeah. like to think of it as when you accept Christ, what you're really doing is you're stopping your free will from accepting the gift. You aren't really taking any action. You've just stopped. Rejecting. Well, the, the beautiful thing that we would have in common with um, our Baptist friends is that it's always in response to the word coming to us. Okay, 
And so we fight forever over, well, did we accept it or did we receive it? So I just put them both the same words in there, okay? Um, but because it always is in response to the word, that people don't just out of the blue, unbelievers just out of the blue go, oh, I believe in Jesus. It's the word comes to them somehow through other humans that tell that person about Jesus, and then that person goes, oh, okay, I accept that or I receive that. So we're going to finish this discussion up next week because, like, i got to go to work now. i got to go to the second service, okay? And because there is, we just want to talk a little bit about double predestination. That was a Calvin thing. And then how, where Luther was coming at it from there. And then how the Arminians uh, got, their, uh, were, got involved in it. And then also the Great Awakening, which w- uh, was a big part of the American Revolution. So, you know, we get, there's all kind of interesting sort of blend of theology and nationality that is part of how people think today. Okay, so we'll... Uh, We'll, we'll spend a little time conversing about that. Okay, sound good? Great. Okay, very good today. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank, you for, we thank you for the fact that you've called us. We thank you for the fact that you predestined us to, be, to belong to you and that you knew that way before the foundation of the world. You knew that before we were born. You knew that before we were anything. And we're, we're grateful for that because... There are times in life when we have doubts about that. And most of the time, the doubts are little doubts, but, you know, doubt is doubt, Lord, and and we struggle with that. Help us to know that from the very beginning, you've loved us, you, you called us to be your own, you sent Jesus to be our Savior, that he is the pathway through not just simply um, forgiveness and the assurance of heaven, but the reality of that. And, and I would just pray for us this week that we can enjoy the reality of that, that in, in, in our faith in you, that we have eternal life, not just only that we're looking forward to it. And help us to live that each day with that certainty. Because there are so many voices in our world today that would seek to uh, erode that or to undermine that in some way. And then, Lord, help us to be instruments in sharing that certainty of hope with other people. Because there are many people, many of them Christians, many people that grew up in the faith are disillusioned. And we all know different people who struggle with that. So help us to be instruments of that certainty. And as we live it and share it, then we can know that we had a part to play in bringing people back to the faith. Watch, uh, watch over us this week and be with us until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, Please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, 
May God bless you throughout your week. Bye.